tonight's class, just quickly the, uh, to mention those that have um, dedicated tonight's class. Uh, the Shear has been dedicated by Chaim and Batya Cohen. This is in honor of Lazecha um, Nishmas, Chaim's sister, Allah Shalom, Charnamatla Baschoni. May her Nishama have a great Aliyah. May you and your family have only Bracha Mazel. Uh, Dr. Cohen had uh, sponsored all the classes of Parsha in my life throughout the month of Elul into the month of Tishrei for the entire life program. Uh, that, I mean, the program called Life that we have running these two months. Um, another dedication this week on the Shear was by um, Shmuel Stroll, a dear friend, and this is in honor of his father's yard site coming up on the 27th, I think the 27th of Elul, which is going to be this Friday, Yehuda ben Tzvi Hersh, may his neshama have a very, very great aliyah to the greatest of heights, and may he channel lots and lots and lots and lots of brachas to, to uh, you and your fam- family for a good gebenched year, for a wonderful good year, a year of prosperity, a year of big bracha and a lot of success, and especially in your upcoming move, where you're elevating you and your family to Eretz Yisrael. May it be gebenched with mazel and bracha, and may we all end up going together with you, um, even before Rosh Hashanah, Ezra Hashem. Um, another dedication this week, this was on the CD. So the CD this week was dedicated by friends, by really good friends, and... I'm including myself in that group, uh, good friends of Ari Orloff. And this is in honor of him becoming a chassan. And Ari is a student of mine, and it's huge, 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 very, very, very big simcha that Ari is a chassan, and his kala, um, um, I don't know her first name. What's her name? Rachel Paikovsky. So I want to give a big mazel tov to Rachel as well. Um, and both of you together should build a bias nemon be Yisrael, a binyan adeyad. It should be a beautiful home, full of light, full of bracha, full of mazel, full of chassidish warmth, and um, many, many, many generations to come. And just, 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 and the wedding should be b'shatayvo mitzlachas, and only, only good things. Thank you for those that have dedicated. Um, I do want to announce <clears throat> now the upcoming schedule <clears throat> of what is happening at mine. First of all, I'd like to say that there are some spectacular classes that are posted to our website, which are an absolute must to listen to. They're so good. 
Uh, my son-in-law gave a unbelievable class yesterday in the morning um, called The Choice, Rosh Hashanah, The Choice. <clears throat> it's already uploaded at, on my website. It's called Navigate Rosh Hashanah, The Choice. So if you look at the Mayan website, uh, go to that class and listen to it. It'll do you a lot of good. Also, this first class the week before was phenomenal. So listen, this is a class by Rabbi Mendel Zirkin, really absolutely marvelous. Uh, last night we had a symposium over here at Maya, dealing with the question, am I a hypocrite? Which is, I think, a tremendous barrier for most of us to do tshuva on Rosh Hashanah and to really make some kind of a movement towards better and better, bettering ourselves. I highly recommend, because the rabbis presented such... For me, I, I can't talk about anybody else. I can only say that from all the classes that ever happened in Mayan, this class was personally beneficial for me to listen to. It was really on the mark. We had Dr. David David Fox, Dr. Rabbi David Fox, we had Rabbi Baruch Kupfer, and we had my son-in-law, Rabbi Zirkind. I mean, they hit the nail on the head, each one from their own angle, but it was so meaningful and special. So again, I highly recommend everyone go online, look for the Discuss, the class called Discuss. It's called Am I a Hypocrite? That's an absolute must to listen to, either before Rosh Hashanah, or if you can't do it before Rosh Hashanah, at least before Yom Kippur. Really, really important. Um, tonight we have this class, which hopefully is going to be worthy of listening. Um, and in addition to that, I want to tell you what's happening the upcoming days. First of all, next week, Monday, is Rosh Hashanah, so there won't be a class. So I'm going to give you now the schedule till the next Monday night class. Tuesday, tomorrow night, is the last class of a series called Think. This is the class given by my daughter, Ms. Z.C. Zirkind. Um, it's a Chavrusa style learning for women, and those who have attended are really, really happy they have come. Those who haven't come here physically can listen to the class online. They're posted. Tomorrow will be the last one of the Maimar Anila Doidi. It's still the month of Elul. You can chaparain. You can really gain a lot from that class. Again, that's tomorrow night at 8 o'clock here at Maya. Wednesday night, we have a very special honor. We're having um, Rabbi Shlomo Einhorn from Yeshiva Siavne. Um, fantastic speaker and he's going to speak on a topic different than what I wrote in the booklet um, we had discussed which one and I put down the wrong one so his topic is going to be really interesting it's when Einstein, when Einstein used the Balshemtov's compass that's his talk on Wednesday night that is going to be really really good it's a pre-Rosh Hashanah talk Rabbi Shlomo Einhorn fascinating speaker very special human being, um, someone that impresses me all the time. Uh, Rabbi Einhorn is going to be here for men and women this Wednesday night. Um, don't be lazy and just lay in the bed. Just come over here to Mayan because something good is happening. Tonight I know you're watching the debate. Fine. But on, uh, on Wednesday, the Gansa debate is over. Uh, it's over already now, meaning it doesn't really because God runs the world. But at least on Wednesday, be here for Wednesday for that class. Thursday we have two classes. In the morning we have my Mashiach class at 11.15 in the morning. And then Thursday evening there's another class, our Thursday night class, last chance for a deep Hasidic prep for Rosh Hashanah. So that is Thursday night, the class 
Um, I don't know what I'm teaching. I can look at this. I'll tell you what I'm teaching. Give me a minute over here. Delve. We're learning the mimer. Ooh, yeah, ki mitzvah hazois. It's the mimer in Torah Oyer, Alakuti Torah, about the mitzvah of tshuva. So watch the words of the Balatanya, of the Alter Rebbe, penetrate your soul. So this is going to be this Thursday night at 8.30. Make a move before Rosh Hashanah to open up your heart and soul for the Yantif, for the new year. Shabbos afternoon, we have the last class of a series we began, Kiaharim uh, Yamushu, a really, really special class. Shabbos afternoon, 5.15. Also, prep for Rosh Hashanah. Uh, it's going to talk all about tshuva. It's going to be really special. 5.15, this Hasidic tshuva full of energy, full of life, full of power. All right, so this is this Shabbos afternoon at 5.15. Then, okay, next week, uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday is Rosh Hashanah. I mean, Monday, Tuesday is Rosh Hashanah. Sunday is Erev Rosh Hashanah, so there's not much happening here. There'll be davening at Mayan Yisrael. You can go on our website if you want to reserve a seat. Um, And next week... Um, Wednesday, not much happening, but Thursday, again, we have both classes, the Liberate, the Mashiach class, and the Delve. Shabbos afternoon is our Shabbos Shuvah talk, next week Shabbos. And then the following Sunday is the last class of my son-in-law, Rabbi Mendel Zirkin, on Navigate. Um, That's a pre and Kippur class called In My Father's Embrace. Um, Very worthy to come to. And in the evening, that very day, Sunday evening, we have a class called um, the class on Sunday. Oops, see, I finally caught a mistake in my book. Uh, that Sunday evening is not transcend. That Sunday evening is the other discuss, which means it's our second. It's our second um, symposium, and it's going to be our Rabbi Rabbi Usher Brander from the Link Kollel. Um, Rabbi Israel Tauber, not Israel Tauber, Rabbi Elchanan Tauber, um, very, the rabbi over here in La Brea, and myself, and we're going to be discussing Am I Forgiven? That is a great topic for Erev Yom Kippur. So please come and join that at 8 o'clock. That is going to be not the next, this coming Sunday, because that's Erev Rosh Hashanah, but the following Sunday. Okay, with all that have been said, um, we're ready to begin tonight's class. So Rosh Hashanah is coming, and I want to focus the class on Rosh Hashanah, not on Parshas Netzavim. Even though Parshas Netzavim and Rosh Hashanah are one and the same. Um, but first, before I begin the class, I want to wish all the listenership a whoever has been, whoever listens, and whoever participates, and um, should and all the Jewish people, but I'd like to give a special, a special blessing for all those that I have a connection to. Um, to bless you, I'm a koyin, so I'd like to wish everyone a year of tremendous expansion in everything in your life. For only goodness, good things should expand in a tremendous way. So much mazel, so much bracha, parnasa bracha, the health, and shaduchim for those who need, and refuah shalema, and much, much simcha and much joy should fill our community, should fill your heart and your families. It should only, only be uh, uh, the best of the best. And ultimately, the big wish that we all have is that 
even before Rosh Hashanah, we should be in Eretz Yisrael, in the Beis Amigdash, in the third Beis Amigdash. Let it happen now. I also want to mention one quick thing. Sorry for taking this time, but I do want to mention one quick thing. My CD machine is down and broken. And um, this is the time of the year that we try to fix broken things. I can't fix the CD any machine. We fixed it so many times, and we pumped so much money in it, and it's just not responding, and we're not going to do that. So it ends up being an, an crazy cost printing the CDs every week when we have to outsource them. We do it temporarily, but we can't continue doing that every week. We need a new machine. Um, I'll tell you what it is. A new machine costs us over five, about 5000 Then there's a warranty. It's about $6,000. And the lifespan of a machine like that, I would say, is three years. Two to three years is the lifespan of a machine like that. It's, a, it's robotic and it breaks. But three years, three years, 50 CDs a year, that will give you 150 uh, um, CDs, each one of them, at least, that's average, each one of them reaches hundreds of people. And you can have a schus, if anybody wants a schus of touching the souls. And I think it's so much more. It's so much more than just, I mean, there's nothing greater than inspiring a Jew and enlightening a, a, a Yid's neshama. But there's something else. The fact that these shiurim are listened to in the midst of the streets of Hollywood and the deepest secrets of the Torah as people are driving down the streets in the midst of this chazarai is such Yisrin HaOrim and HaChoshech. It's such powerful light coming from amidst the darkness. The Nachas Ruach, the pleasure, the delight, the Simcha that it causes above, I'm absolutely sure is Ein Lashar, cannot be. So this is a tremendous investment for someone who wants to have a big schus before Rosh Hashanah. If you would like to get us a new machine, uh, we can even put in the order before Rosh Hashanah because we really, really need it. Uh, it doesn't make sense for us to always send it out it's, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's just a, cr- a crazy amount of money so um, again if anybody listening to the shear through online or whoever especially if you're a CD user of our CDs in the past you know how much it means to you let's give it another three years of Man Yisrael CDs I know in about three years from now everything's going to be digital and we're going to be off CDs won't be any nece- we won't need it anymore but I think for a last shot there are so many people that are still attached to the CDs and I would again ask someone, or if you know someone that you can really, I, 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 I'm, I'm really, uh, don't, don't, I, I have limited resources who I can turn to, but you, the listener, might have an uncle, a cousin, an aunt, who would like to do a donation for something worthy. Here is an opportunity for actually spreading so much Torah uh, in the community. So that's my pitch for today. Uh, please pass it on, and let's hope a miracle happens. And we do find a special donor for the CD. Okay, now that all that has been said, and everybody in the room filled up, which is really exciting, um, the energy comes from the audience. So now that we have an audience here, now we can begin. Um, all right. So, Rosh Hashanah is coming, and Rosh Hashanah is intense. Yom Kippur is intense. Rosh Hashanah is intense. And... Um, the overwhelming feeling that we have in Rosh Hashanah is, is one of, there's, there's excitement to a certain degree, but it's, 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 it's discomfort. I can talk about myself. I get very uncomfortable in Rosh Hashanah. It's a feeling of discomfort because yeah. you, if you're tuning into the day, it's a scary day. It's a frightening day. Um, you, you know, and we all know that we're being judged on this day. We know that that's secondary. 
the main thing is that we're crowning God as a king, and we ought to have that as the main focus in our mind. But we can't help remember that our entire year and everything that's going to happen to us in this upcoming year is hinging on the next 48 hours. And that's an intimidating thought. And when we... And, and the Mach, and, and God is kind of revealing Himself to us, our connection to Hashem. It's, our relationship with God during this time is very intense. We, we sense Hashem very strongly. Everybody relative, but everybody more than we feel Him all year long. But the general state of the way Hashem is appearing to us on Rosh Hashanah is a little bit, is with strict judgment. God is appearing as a mighty, awesome king. And even though we preface kingship with father we know it's our father our king avinu malkenu but the main emphasis in the davening if you're looking through is not so much father if you look through the the, 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 the machzer the message that comes through from every page from all the piyutim that we're singing all those poetries beautiful that we sing to God but it's all emphasizing Hashem as a mighty awesome king and we describe how the cosmos are trembling. Hayom haras olam, which means today the world is born. The world is, today is the impregnation of the world. Haras melosh and hiroyen. But it also means hayom haras olam, today the world trembles. We say in the Nisan malachim that the malachim, the angels, the angels that, they hardly sin. What can an angel do already? They're so nullified to God. that, But still, because God is judging and, and, and no one finds favor. Gambishamayim Yasim Sahala, I think the Lushan is, that even in heavens God finds imperfection. Who can be perfect in front of the Yebish, in front of Hashem? So the angels tremble, tremble in awe and in fear. And we, ought, we too ought to tremble. And from the awesomeness, as it says in Me'emasadin. So the question is why? Why is that so necessary? Why do we have to go through this anxiety? Why do we have to go through this pressure? We know that it's really our loving Father in Heaven that is masked with a veil of a big judge. We know He's behind it. But we can't ignore the judgment. We can't ignore Hashem as a, as a king coming to judge the world and disregard it. As many Hasidic classes you've gone to, and as much as we've try to present Rosh Hashanah in the most optimistic way like Hasidism likes to do as opposed to the non-Hasidic approach which is complete fear but the Hasidic approach is full of love we can't ignore the idea that it is a day of judgment and it's extremely serious and it causes anxiety and pressure and the question is what, to what purpose? why can't we just have a loving daddy and have that sense? we sense that on on, 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 on Sukkot, of course. It's the love, it's the closeness, it's the connection. Yom Kippur already, it's easing up. Yom Kippur already as you know, as my son-in-law's class, the Rabbi Zirkin coming the following Sunday is called, In My Father's Embrace. Yom Kippur already, we feel the warmth of the love. But Rosh Hashanah, especially the first day of Rosh Hashanah, is, is strict judgment. And we, we, we look for a weapon, we look for something to protect us and shield us, we grab a shofar. Why? Why does that happen? So, I mean, superficially we can say, because if we don't have a little fear in our life, if we don't have a little bit of a, a recognition that, there is, that we're held accountable for our actions, we would just go on being spoiled and being brats 
and just doing whatever we want to do. So once a year, we have to kind of realize that life is very serious and we are accountable for our actions and we can't just go around wreaking havoc in the planet and expecting that nothing is going to happen. So we have to have an understanding that there is a judge and we have to face our... uh, 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 um, We have to stand in front of the judge and there is some kind of law and order in the world and it is for our for us to understand that 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 um, that we're held accountable. Now, is that a good thing? Is it okay for a person to have fear of punishment? It's fear of punishment, which is really what we're talking about. We're talking about knowing there's a consequence, knowing that God is ruling the world, and for the misdeeds that we do, we could get go shalom, God forbid a person could get punished. And that's the way the system is. God has mercy. And mercy and mercy and mercy and forgive and forgive and forgive and he has patience, but there could be punishment. Is that a good thing for a person to have fear of punishment? Now, the truth is, it's a very, 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 very inferior kind of service to serve God out of fear of punishment. Um, that's not optimum. It's not something that we should strive for. However, um, it is necessary. And even Hasidus tells us, that is so positive, tells us that when it comes to a person restraining their animal soul, which our animal soul can sometimes go haywire, our animal soul can be totally out of whack and just, you know, thinking that it can do whatever, get away with whatever it wants, sometimes we need a little stick to get the animal to behave. A wild animal needs a whip to put him in place. We have an animal inside of us, and so it says like this, that even though fear of punishment is really selfish, because really you're not serving God, you're serving yourself. You're just watching out for your own self that you shouldn't get hurt. So you're not really serving anybody. That's not called a service. That's just looking out for yourself. It's so selfish. If it's selfish, then why is it, and why is it even good? The answer is, it's only good if it's saving you from something worse. And selfishness itself is a klipa. It's a shell, it's a covering of God, but it's a klipa called klipas noga. Klipas noga means an intermediate shell. But then there is really, really dark shells, really dark, dark things, that's a sin. And if the fear of punishment is saving you from sin, then it's validated. Because the sin would take you even into a darker place. So better to use the fear of punishment in order to save a person from rebellion against God. So it has its place. So we can say that that's why we have this whole, this whole thing happening every year of Shoshana to kind of give us that stick and so that we behave. However, that's very shallow. And to say that all the Jewish people begin our year and even tzaddikim and even great people have to go through this fear of punishment and the like, one could get away saying that, but that's obviously a superficial approach. There must be something much deeper in this tension that happens at the beginning of every Jewish year. So let's understand it. So we shouldn't feel threatened by it. What I would like to bring everybody at listening to this class, by the end of this class, is that we don't feel threatened by this tension that, is, that we're going to have. But rather we should be looking forward and excited about the opportunity that we have this tension. So the tension is a good, it's for a good purpose, and let's see if we can get to that. So let's understand that there's a Pasuk in Shira Shirim, where the Pasuk says like this, Smoilai tachas His left hand is beneath my head, 
and his right hand embraces me. So it's a Pasuk speaking about the love that God has to the Jewish people. And that we're considered God's bride or God's wife, and He's coming to hug us and embrace us. There is a deep, all of Shira Shirim is all expressing the romance that there is between Hashem and the Jewish people. And the verse says, His left hand is beneath my head. His right hand embraces me. Now the left hand is referring to, you know, left and right. Right represents chesed, kindness. And left represents gevura, toughness, discipline, and the like. So God has a right side, and that's His loving kindness. And God has a left side, and that is His stern judgment and strictness. God as a judge, God as a fearful, frightening king, right? That who can who can decide a person's fate, give life or take life. So that's all the left side. And what is being said over here is that both the right and the hand, that the right hand and the left hand, both hands, are part of an embrace. Which means it's not to understand, God forbid, that the left hand is a rejection. The left hand is the opposite of closeness and intimacy. Then why would, it, why would the left be discussed in Shir Hashirim? I can understand in the book of Kehelas or the book of um, Mishlei or something like that, where Shlomo HaMelech is kind of veering into different avenues of the relationship of God and the world, looking at life from a different angle, from a mumusser approach. That's what Kehelas looks at. But over here we're looking at Shir Hashirim, talking about love. And we're talking about God grabbing his bride and locking his arms around her in a deep, loving embrace and in a kiss. And yet it says, his left hand is beneath my head. So the Kabbalists tell us that the left hand beneath our head is referring to actually Rosh Hashanah. This Pasuk is talking about the holidays of the month of Tishrei. Rosh, my head, is referring to the head of the year. So the beginning of the year, God is extending His left hand. That is the distance that we feel, the coldness a little bit. That our loving Father is not smiling to us so much, but He's looking strictly at us, and He wants to, us to do a reckoning. He wants us to own up for everything that we've done during the year. So that's that left hand. And then, after, that's Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then finally comes Sukkis, the Yeminoit Chapkeni, we get the embrace of God's right hand. But the left hand is also part of the embrace. Which means that the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur fearful um, 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 expression or God's mode of, reach, of, of presenting Himself to us is all part of that, bre- of that embrace. And it is meant to bring us really, really close. It's meant to initiate a bonding and a connection that we would never be able to have without that stern left hand. The stern left hand is there to pull us into an embrace. And God could not do it with His right hand. It wouldn't work. The only way it works is when He starts off with His left hand, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, left, din, judgment, HaMelech HaMishpat, Lekeil Oirech Din, God who sets a judgment, and non-stop speaking about judgment and the like, fine. That's the, as we said earlier, malachim yechafezin, the malachim are trembling. That's the left hand. But that is a prelude to sukkis, to the love, and we would never get to the love and to that type of a connection without the harshness of Rosh Hashanah. So let's understand a little bit why that is. What does the left hand accomplish? 
So there's a very interesting Zohar. Uh, what I am saying now is a synopsis from a fascinating discourse from the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Reb Shalom uh, Bear, um, the fifth Chabad Rebbe known as the Rashab, in, a, in, his, in his series of Maimarim from the year Resh Nun Tes, Tough Resh Nun Tes, there is a mimer called Shuva Yisrael. By the way, if you want to read this discourse, I highly recommend you reading it from the source because I can't do justice to it. Um, the, 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 the discourse is very powerful. It's printed in English as part of the Hasidic Heritage series. I prepared my share actually reading it from that book. So you can read it over on your own because I'll definitely leave out some points. And it's a very, 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 very important fundamental discourse in understanding the whole tshuva process. But over there he quotes a Zohar. Where the Zohar says, uh, on, in a pasuk in Pasha's Korach, where it speaks about the Levian. So it says, Va'avad halevi hu. The Levi should serve who? He, meaning the Levian, they should serve. So the Zohar makes a very interesting um, statement on this Pasuk, Va'avad halevi hu. Which is, by the way, grammatically, it doesn't make any sense to Pasuk. Va'avad halevi'im, the Levian should work. The word, Va'avad halevi hu, that the Levian should work who, which means him. What does it mean, they should work him? That's, a, that, that's what the Zohar is bothered with. So the Zohar says an interesting idea. That him is referring to God himself. God's essence. It's someone that we can't point to in front of us because the essence of God is not displayed in creation. God's rays, Hashem's, Hashem's projections are present within creation. God's essence is concealed and hidden and removed and above and above and infinitely transcendent. So that's why we refer to him as who, as something concealed, as something hidden. Who, him, someone that's not in front of us. So the Tsar says an interesting thing. Who da atika? That's atik. Atik yomen means God Himself, the ancient one. And the Tsar is saying that you should know that the only way to get to who, to get to God Himself, is through the Levites, through the Levim. Now we know between Kohanim and Levim, the Kohanim are on the right side and the Levim are on the left side. It's stated many places, and we spoke about it in many classes. Kohanim are called are on the side of Chesed. Your urim v'tumim, which is the breastplate the Kohen Gadol wore, is given to a man of kindness. The Kohanim, they're all about blessings. Blessings is kindness. They bless the Levim, their energy is the energy of the left side, of Gevura. Um, similar to the difference between Beishamai and Beishilel. Beishilel is on the right, Beishamai is to the left. So what are the three things the Zohar says are a consequence of the left side in this world? So the first thing, which is the Zohar says it as, as the second, is simply there is a fear of punishment, okay, which we need. People would be far more likely to do whatever their heart desires is. So this is like a, 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 a whip that needs to be there. Fine. But the Zohar says another two things. There wouldn't be perfect service in this world. Obviously that cannot mean fear of punishment because fear of punishment is not perfect service. There would not be perfect service in this world without the, without the left side. And number three, people would not know of the higher faith. Mehemnusa ilah, the higher faith people wouldn't know. So what does all of that mean? So that's what we wanted to talk about tonight. What does that mean? And here is the idea. The foundation of our connection to God is love. A Jew serves God 
and our service is fueled by love. Every day we say it. Contemplate God's greatness. Know Hashem, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Hashem Echad. And what is that supposed to lead you? To love. And when you have love, you have drive. You have juice inside of you. You're driven to do what? To connect to your Creator. And that will drive and fuel your Torah and mitzvahs. That's what it continues in the Shema. After we have the love, what will you do as a consequence of the love? You will... Uh, you will speak in Torah all day long you'll be consumed with a desire with a passion with a fervor to connect to God so if you want to connect to Hashem and you're driven because you're loved and you want to get close to the one that you're loving so therefore you're you're, 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 you're learning Torah and then the mitzvahs you'll put on tefillin and mezuzah now really we know and the, and the sages tell us that all of Torah all mitzvahs are compared to tefillin and mezuzah also makes us remember all the mitzvahs. So when Shema says that what? That you should love God, and as a result of that, you will learn Torah, and you will keep tefillin, and, and you, will have, uh, you will have tefillin and mezuzah, it really means it will lead to all the observance of all the mitzvahs. Like we say in the end of the Shema, Laman Tizkiru, you remember as kol mitzvah Isai, all of my mitzvahs. Fine. So the energy is the energy of love. Not so much the fear, it's the love. Now, however... There are three types of love. And it says it right at the beginning of the Shema. You should love God with all your heart, with all your soul. And then it says you should love God with all your might. Or actually translated, it means with all your much. Ma'od means much, a lot. Love God with all your much. That doesn't make any sense. What does it mean to love God with all my much? And the answer is love God with more than what you have. With all your heart means love Him with all the energy of love that you have in your heart. All your passion should go only to God. Pull your passion out of everything else and direct your passion to one thing only. And that is loving God. I understand. Love God. Let... Fine. With all your soul means that the love means that the love cannot even be contained in your heart. It spills out, it consumes your entire being. It's not only in your, lo- in your heart. It fills every limb of your body. Your fingers, your, your toes are pulsating with love. B'chol nafshecha, with your entire being. But that's still inside a container. All your heart, all your being, but your being has a limit. It's with, your, it's with the entire you, but you have a limit. Then it says... The real love that you ought to get to is Go past to you. Love God with energy that's totally beyond you. Love God infinitely. Be driven with an infinite drive. But how can I do that? I only have what I have. I don't have more than what I have. How can I love with more? Ma'od. Ma'od means infinite. Because really much can only say in something that is boundless. Something that has a measure is it a lot. It depends to who, you know. Someone has a million dollars, it's a lot to them. Is it a lot to, to Donald Trump? No, it's a little. So it, 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 everything is relative. So, but when you say much, it means really infinite. So God is telling us, love Him with infinite, but I don't have the infinite. Only God is infinite. I don't have infinite. That's where Rosh Hashanah comes in. That's where this anxiety comes in. That's where all the stress comes in over the next 
two weeks. It's just to drive you to that place where you become infinite. Where you become, where there's an infinite gushing energy flowing through you that's infinitely bigger than you. And as we're going to see soon, that only happens when you break. And the entire Rosh Hashanah experience is just to cause us to break. And when we break, our identity, our being breaks and we shatter. Because we're standing in awe in front of an almighty God and we don't know where to put our face. We don't, can't make peace with our shlomazelkeit, with our failures, with our insignificance. And with all that we've this and we, and we can't bear it, that's when we break. And when we break... That's when we can love God and yearn for Him and, 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 and long and rush towards God with an infinite energy that's infinitely beyond us. But let's understand that a little better and understand the uniqueness of that love and how does it work. Generally, how do we create emotion? We're born instinct, instinctively with emotions and our emotions are drawn instincti- instinctively towards the material physical things around us. No one is born with a great love for God. Inside, subconscious, yeah, but consciously, you're not born with a love for God. You've got to work on it. You've got to work on it. Naturally, our love is to all physical, material pleasures that give us instant gratification. So we have to. And we know that a person's emotions are, are susceptible to change. Emotions are meant to be changed. Our emotions change as we grow from child to adult. The emotions can be intelligent emotions. And hopefully as we grow, some of the intelligence of our mind goes into the emotions. Things that are silly, insignificant, and utter, are, are, are only, they're, they're big to a little child, they're meaning, they're meaning a candy, a little sugar candy, jelly beans, it's like, wow, the kid's eyes lights up when you take out you know, a pack of jelly beans, and an adult, he sees jelly beans, it's, it's meaningless. And maybe, you know, sometimes you want a little sweet whatever but it's it doesn't really create that reaction because your emotion your power my emotion is a tr- your attraction your power of love has grown more intelligent and it's looking for something that is a little bit more worthy than the simple taste of a jelly bean maybe it hasn't grown too much it's looking for a little bit more of a sophisticated taste of a steak grilled to perfection that has uh, fried onions on the top with some other whatever and now it's sophisticated enough to be worthy for an adult obviously it's really not where a person's a human being's attachment should be but at least so much our emotions grow as we grow older our emotions and, and we start appreciating things that are more valuable in life our passions hopefully stop being childish and grow up emotions can be trained the intelligence itself goes into the emotion and directs the emotion to a different place. That's the whole theme of the reciting of the Shema. That is our main avoda as a Jew. We have to train our emotions to extract, it, extract them from their natural tendency to be entrenched in the material, superficial, external things of life and direct it towards God. How do we do that? So we do that through meditating on a simple meditation. Now, it's a simple. If you never ever listen to another class... And you just listen to this class. And if I would only take the advice of listening to this class, it would also be good. But if you would only listen to this class for the rest of your life, every single week, one time, and try to do what I'm going to tell you right now, then your life is going to be a different life. You're going to reach your purpose for what you were created for. It's as simple as this. 
And that is a simple meditation. It's, I'm not telling you, this is not my thought. It's what the Torah is saying. It's coming really from, to a certain degree, from the Baal Shem Tov, as he explains it a little better. But the Pasuk really says it. It says you should love God, because He is your life. God is your life. A human being loves life. We want to be alive. We love our soul. The thought of God forbid, God forbid our soul leaving our body, simple words, the thought of dying is the scariest thought. If God forbid one's life is threatened, we don't even realize how much, how much we love our soul because it's a constant, we so take it for granted. God forbid we're in a situation. I was just reading the other day, there was a terror attack, we were in a mall just, uh, just the other day. And I was reading, uh, we get caught up with all these narishkites. I'm reading this, and there's this lady describing how she ran out of the mall and she bent, oh, her kids, she, she ran, she tripped and she fell as she was running out of the mall. And the gunman went running right past her and right past her children. And Baruch Hashem, he didn't shoot them. And when she saw him shooting there in the Macy's Mall there, wherever it was, and killing you know, a couple of people, then he ran outside and she describes how she was riding home and an entire trip home, she's just shaking like a leaf. I mean, we can understand. Because when the moment there was the the thought that your life or your kids' lives were so close to having been gone away, that's because we love life, we love our soul. But let's, let's say, why do we love our soul so much? Because we understand that body without soul is nothing. We love ourselves, but we recognize that our body is just the external shell. Inside there, there is, there is a soul. And the soul is what animates and makes the body everything the body is. The, the, the uh, simple example. I mean, we love a person. We all love our dear families. We love very, very close. Our parents, our, our, our siblings, our children. It's so powerful, that love. And God forbid, I mean, chas v'shalom, Hashem should protect. Someone passes away. We take the body, and the family's all there. They take the body and put the body in the earth. Say, well, you love. You love your parents so much. This is your mom, this is your dad, this is, your, this is a person you're so connected to. What do you mean? You're, you're putting him in the ground, you're never going to see them again. That doesn't make any sense. God forbid with a child. How are you doing that? It's a ridiculous question. Why don't you keep, why don't you keep the, the body? Why don't you keep the body so you love this person? And the answer is, the person is not there. But even though there's a body, but the body without the soul is just a shell. It's nothing, it's a wrapper. When the soul is in the body, then the two of them become one unit. But when the soul ends, goes out of the body, the person isn't there. We still go to the grave. Why do we go to the grave? Because that's where the neshama is. The soul of the departed hangs around, around the grave. Certain parts of the soul. So that's why we go there. But it's not the body anymore, because we all recognize that body without soul is nothing. The soul is the end. Well, to a certain extent, the, the soul in life is the body. But the body is at least still in existence, even when the soul goes away, because the body still exists. The truth is the body also only exists from an energy, a godly energy that's in, that creates matter. So the body is created by, it's not from the neshama. Because if the soul, if the body, if the soul would be making the very substance of the body, then the moment the soul would go away, the body should disappear. The body doesn't disappear, it's just that it loses its senses. It senses. doesn't have any more taste, it doesn't have any more to, to see, to think. To, to, to. All the senses go away, all the feelings, all the movement goes away. But the body is still there. But in truth, because you see that the body has an energy. So there in the, in the discourse, he says something really fascinating. He says, but you see that the body eventually does decompose. Uh, a couple of months, a year, whatever, the body will decompose. 
Why does the body decompose? It's also because the soul has left it. And he says like this, as long as the neshama is inside the body, or it, it does two things. It enlivens the body, but it also causes the energy of God to be in the body. The body itself. The body has its own energy. When the soul goes away, that energy from the body also goes away. That's why it decomposes. If so, why doesn't it decompose right away? And the answer is because in Kabbalah, it's described that the soul hangs around the body for a certain period of time. For the week of Shiva, even after it leaves, for the week of Shiva to a greater degree, and then, then 30 days to a lesser degree, and then for the entire year, even a lesser degree. But the neshama stands is by the grave. If the neshama is by the grave, because the soul is there, that's why it derives, it brings down that energy that sustains the body. But really, when the soul goes away completely, and therefore the other energy that sustains the body also goes away, what happens? The body rots, and there's nothing there. Because physicality without spirit is zero. Zero little. Now, that's in our own... In our own and therefore, our body knows that. Our bodies know that they are absolutely zero without the soul. That's why the body is so surrendered to the soul. And when the soul wants or moves or does anything, the body instantly reacts. You don't have to have a conversation when you want to get up and walk. Where you're like, your soul wants to do something, you're inspired. Let's say, let's say especially if it's, a, it's, let's say if it's an abstract inspiration. I'll give you an example. You can say that if I want to you know, eat a pretzel, so my body gets up because my body wants the pretzel. Okay, I understand that. So I go to the cupboard, I grab a pretzel. Okay, fine. But what happens if I want to go read, you know, something from the Arizal? <laughs> the body ain't interested in the Arizal at all. But you have, it. so it's a spiritual inspiration. But the, the body gets up instantly. It walks to the shelf and it just pulls out the, the thing. It, the, all the, you know how many muscles you have to move to walk and get up and go? And the body essentially is lazy. Why doesn't it ever rebel and just sit there? And I doesn't want to go. And you're like, mm, get up! It doesn't want to get up! Like when you try to get your children to do something, right? Yeah. <laughs> They don't want to do, right? So your body, and the body doesn't want to respond. At least it should be a kind, and finally it goes. It's not that way. I was preparing this year, I was sitting right over there on that chair, and I was thinking about this, and I said, you know what? And I started thinking like, and I started wiggling my whole body. I'm wiggling, I'm sitting there, and I'm just shaking. And I'm saying, isn't that cool? I want to do this strange thing right now. I want to move my body, and I'm like moving it in all these weird directions. Just because the soul is wiggling right now. So the body is instantly saying, Hey, why are you not wiggling? Stop the wiggle. No, I'm just wiggling. Why? Because I was just trying to prove this idea that the soul has control over the body instantly. If you want to try this, take your finger right now. Your index finger. Right? I don't know if anybody's going to do it, but I'm going to do it. Okay? Flick your ear. Give yourself a good flick. Yeah? Did it? It hurts. Why'd you do that? Why would your body comply? Because you had a will. You had a soul will. It's a, spiritual, it's a soul will to flick your, thing, your ear. You just did it. Right? Because the body is surrendered to the soul. Because the body knows without the soul, it's zilch. It's zero. It needs the soul for its, for its, very, for its, for its very existence. Now, for now, here's where the meditation begins. Once you realize that, you say to yourself like this. Everything in this physical world has a soul. Has, just like my body, its power is spiritual, which is a soul. The world, all physical, all physical existence has a spirit to it. 
And that's a divine energy. God is the soul of creation. So the, the, the world is alive. The stars, the galaxies, everything is moving. What's the movement? It's the soul of creation. And that's God's energy. God is the soul of the world. And God pulls out of the world zilch. There's nothing there, nothing. And the energy is everything. We only see the external shell, but that's not what's really there. It's the soul, it's the pulsating life force coming from God that's within every creature and every being, creating it, sustaining it, and making it. And therefore, when I see in that's even inanimate objects, everything, the taste of the apple, the juiciness of it, the flavor, the tanginess, whatever kind of flavor, the sweetness, that's all dependent, there's a soul there, there's a divine energy. And, the, and depending on how that energy is a combination of chesed and gavura, that's what will decide the sweetness or the bitterness or the tanginess of that apple. We're soon going to eat apples and honey, right? So all the, you can go to the store and shop all kinds of different apples. That's because the energy, the different, the different the godly energy in it. A different composition, spiritual composition. But that's what the apple is. And then when you think about that, and then you remember what the Baal Shem Tov teaches. And here's the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov says, the Pasuk says, I'm giving before you. God says, I'm putting before you. Death and evil. Um, life and good. Choose life. So the Baal Shem Tov says, in every physical entity that there is, there is, there is the life of it. The life of it is its spiritual godly energy. And there is the death of it. What's the death of it? The death of it is the matter without the soul. The matter of the outer soul is a dead thing. And the Torah is telling you, choose the life. And here is, here is the most astonishing thing. Our observance, we know science tells us this today, that we actually create reality through the way we're observing it, that's what's making it be. There's a whole theory in science today, that our observing of things is actually creating it. But Torah said this a long time ago. Your observation of something, the way you see something, that's its reality. And here it plays out in an amazing way. You see an apple. You see an apple. And the apple looks fresh, delicious, tasty. And you walk over to the apple, and in your mind, or in someone's mind, God doesn't exist at this moment. The only thing that exists is my, 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 my craving of my taste buds to be now, um, um, uh, uh, to be now t- um, excited by the taste of this, of the of the crunch. You know that there's a certain pleasure in the crunch of an apple, and that sh- sourness or or sweetness that's now going to come down, and it's going to cause a sizzling sensation on my taste buds. And that's what I want right now. It's not. I'm not talking about a severe gluttonous. You're not eating over here a a, a, a double Mac burger. With, I'm talking about just eating an apple. There's nothing, and you need an apple. But at that moment, you're not thinking at all about the soul of the apple, the godly energy that's pulsating in the apple. You're only looking and thinking of the apples. You know what the Balshemta says happens at that moment? You're actually only so now you're separating the physicality from the spirit because you're not observing the spiritual side of it. You're only seeing that a person is only seeing the physicality. Guess what? When you're grabbing the apple and you're crunching, you're really not crunching on anything because it doesn't exist. The apple without that divine energy is zero, it's nothing. So you're really eating zero. So the Balshemtav is saying, take the life. How do you take the life of it? If you stop for a moment and think there is an apple. But why? How did the apple end up existing? Someone is being it into being. There's a life force there. It's God deciding there should be an apple. Why? So why should I eat it? 
Oh, I need that sensation. I'm falling asleep now. I'm tired. I'm going to have that taste in my mouth. It's going to give me, first of all, energy. It's going to give me that awakening. It's going to freshen my mind. And I'm going to be able to focus as being a Jew, davening, learning, whatever it is. I'm preparing something, to, a class to give. I need to have that. It's going to lie. I want to connect. God, I want to use your apple that you created because I know you created it so that I can use it to serve you. And you make a bracha and you have that consciousness. We call it mindfulness in today's modern world. It's that mindfulness. Guess what happens? Then when you're taking your apple, the apple, you're not taking the hollow, empty shell that is non-existent. You're taking the soul of the apple. Now imagine, just imagine this for one moment. Imagine we see a human being who, who, who has a certain, a certain, um, what would you call it, dyslexia, or a certain kind of a uh, thing that in which their vision is off. And they see things, whenever they see something, they're really seeing it a foot away from where it really is. Imagine that. A person has a distorted vision. So whenever they're going to take something, if they're going to take a glass of orange juice, they're actually going a foot away and they're going like this. But in their imagination, they don't have, they're certain that they actually took the orange juice. Because they thought they're grabbing the glass. They think they're glassing there. In their mind, they're really grabbing the glass. But they're really not. And you're watching this human being live their life, and you watch them waste away. Because obviously, they're not going to live too long. Because when they're also putting it to their mouth, they're not even putting it in their mouth. They're putting it over there. <laughs> you realize everything is, it's not their mouth. They didn't drink. But in their mind, they thought they, because they're living in this la-la land of fantasy, as if they're completely off by a foot. So you feel terrible. You say, Arachmanis. I mean, if we only bank could fix this guy needs brain surgery immediately or some kind of an adjustment so that they can see things or else they're going to die. That's what the Torah is crying. The Torah says, Jew, wake up. Don't grab the hollow emptiness of life. Every experience of life connected to its source. Because guess what? When you're observing it in an external, superficial way, you're actually disconnected. That's what we mean when we say you're, you're, you're not elevating the spark, you're dragging it down. It means you're disconnecting the energy of it from its reality. And then what are we doing? Then what we're doing is we're holding on to nothingness. And of course we die, because we're living on nothingness. But if we connect to the soul of everything, then every experience of life is eternal, it's real, you're connecting to its reality. So when someone meditates on exactly this idea, this is what davening is supposed to be. Think about that the cosmos and the world and everything that's there in it has a soul. And the soul is its reality, is its energy, is its truth. To chas v'shalem, grab on to the external shell of something and not to it, is missing the whole point. Now here's what happens. You meditate on this one time for 10 minutes, it's a beautiful idea. Is it going to change your life? No. Maybe you're going to be inspired. Fine, it's not going to change. It's not going to change your emotions. Do this every day for five minutes. Five minutes, think about this very thought. Just five minutes. Deeply. Close your phone, close, go into a dark room if you can. Really concentrate on just this idea. Everything has a soul. And the soul is God. Guess what's going to happen? First of all, you're going to have elevated emotions. Your desire, your, your sense of passion is going to be just to, to reach for Hashem. To the godliness of things. You're not going to want... But here's the thing, not only is your neshama going to get excited, but guess what? Even our animal consciousness, and even our, what we call the nefesh al-Bahamas, 
that is an essentially a coarse being that only knows of externalities and of material things, it too will be educated. Its emotions will slowly disappear. The same way you as an adult don't crave a jelly bean, per se, because you have a more sophisticated emotion, the same way this thought process will cause an elevated it will, it will cause the emotions to become intelligence and the emotions to become godly. And then, goodbye with all the physical temptations and allure of the material, physical world. Everything you want to do is going to be with purpose. And if it's not for a purpose, it loses its appeal. It becomes utterly silly. That means loving God, with all your heart. Because every part of your heart, once a person recognizes, here is the idea of Shema Yisrael Hashem Echod, that Hashem is the life force of the heavens and of the four sides of the world, and He is the only energy of it, then automatically, Bechol Levavcha, all passion that has been fragmented in a million different things are all collected together, and it's only focused on one thing, and that is the Ebeshter. That is Hashem. Even, and that's why the sages say, Bechol Levavcha means with both your hearts. Your godly soul and your animal soul. Because even the Sahara can't continue with his foolishness. You know, if you explain it to him once and twice, how long is he going to argue the silly, ridiculous argument that you should be running after pleasures that don't exist? If you realize, once you call a spade a spade, once you define things the way they really are, then this is what it is. Just... And then it, it can't deceive you anymore. So you change your heart. You have a real change of heart. Then the next love, which we're not going to dwell on now a lot, is Bechol Nafshecha. Bechol Nafshecha means, now that your heart is craving only for God, then Bechol Nafshecha means, all your soul means, every expression of your soul is going to be in connection to your divine service. Bechol Nafshecha means, with all of your soul's expressions. Now what are your soul expressions? Your thought, speech, and action. Every thought is going to consider God, or else it has no appeal. You're going to look for godly content in every thought. In every speech, you will only say words that have godly, godly meaning. And then all of our actions, your activity will also be only if you can find something godly to that, you will do it. You will be involved with it. So God is now shining into every thought, speech, and action of a human being. And now you're living real. You're real. You're really being alive. You're, you're connecting to the soul of reality, not to the external shell, empty, dead element of it, fake element, you're connecting to reality. That's loving God with all your heart and all your soul. But that's not Rosh Hashanah. What we just spoke about till now is all year long. This is your exercise all year long. Rosh Hashanah is a whole different story. Now there's a whole different kind of a love. It's called Bechol Ma'odecha. You see, this kind of love is a love that you're loving God, but it's a measured love. The reason why it's measured, measured means it has a limit why does it have a limit? Because you're loving God because He is the... First of all, it's the entire theme of the love. The entire underlying premise of the love. I love God because He's my life. I realize that He is the true energy. He's energy. God is energy. Without energy, everything is nothing. So God is the energy. So I love God. Why do I love God? Because He's my life. So therefore, when I want to get... When I want to attach myself to God, why do I want to attach myself? Because I realize that the more I connect and I reveal God inside of me, the more I'm alive. Ooh. But what does that tell me? That I always want to remain me. I can't love God infinitely. Because if I love God infinitely, means that I want to get so close till I merge totally. I want to run into God's light 
to the point where I cease to exist. But hold it. The whole premise of the love is because it's enhancing my existence. So if, if I'm going to love, and I'm going to melt, and I'm going to dissolve, if I run into God, then I want Him so deeply and so strong, and I dissolve in Hashem, what's called kilosa nefesh, expiration of soul, then the whole premise of the love was only because my mind told me that God is life. But now this is against life. It's antithetical to the love. So I will love God, but I will put a break on the love. I will put a measure to it. I love you very much. I want to be close to you, but I don't want total fusion with you. That's number one. Number two, the love is being generated by what? What's causing the love? Your mind, our intelligence, our perception. I spoke about a meditation, but you realize that every single human being who thinks this meditation will perceive it differently because everybody's mind is different. So therefore, and everybody has a limit on how much they can perceive and how much they can understand. Our minds are limited. So the love, the consequential love that's coming from our intelligence, since our intelligence is limited, then therefore what? The love is also limited. Third reason, very important, third reason. The one that we are loving is the limited side of God. It's not God Himself. Because why are you loving God? Not because of who God is. You're loving God because of what God is doing for the universe. You're loving God's input into creation. Now God's input in creation is what? It's huge. It's the soul of the cosmos. Wow! Incredible. (laughs) To us it's incredible. But in truth, the true value of what God puts into creation, what does Hashem invest into creation? So let me tell you, and we learn this all the time, what Hasidus tells us, and what what it comes out from the Kabbalists tell us, that what God invests into creation is but a crumb of a crumb of a crumb of His infinite light. Nothing. God really doesn't put anything of His true self into creation. In Zohar it says, hear this, in Zohar it says that God creates all of creation and all of the world in one thought. One thought is what creates everything. Please do yourself a favor for one second. Review in your mind how many thoughts did you have today? How many thoughts went, think about it. Who are you thinking about 8.36 and 33 seconds? Now let's move to 9.47. What was going on in your mind? 9.47 and 22 seconds. Hold it. Now it's 10.38. What was going on then? I don't know. Does anybody know how many? I thought a thousand. I probably thought. I don't know how many thoughts. I don't know if they ever did a study. How many thoughts run through your mind in any given day in a 24-hour period? A billion. I don't know. I can't say a billion. But probably, I would say maybe 30,000 thoughts. Different thoughts. Our mind is racing. What's the value of that one thought in compared to the creative mind that can think endlessly? What is the value of that one thought? Imagine God sustains all of creation. The power and the energy is one thought. And to God, it's infinitely less than it is to us. It's zero. It's nothing. So if you're loving God because there's the energy of creation, you're still really loving nothingness. Okay, you're not loving the shell. You're not loving the empty, empty fake external rapper, you're loving the energy, but the energy is also nothing. So what are you really? You're still stuck in nothingness. But that's the best we can. We can't know what's outside of the cosmos. We can't know God as God is for Himself. It's impossible. You can't know Hashem. No creature can know God. There's no thought that can grasp Him. Yes, nobody can know God besides you because you're a godly soul. Because you have an neshama, because your soul is a piece of God from above. 
So you can know God the way God truly is. Not intellectually. You know it intrinsically. An neshama is one with Hashem and it's intrinsic oneness. But guess what? You'll never reach, you'll never tap into that knowledge that's in, that's in the essence of your being and the essence of your soul because that part is not revealed. That part is covered up. It's covered up by what? By the identity of your soul as a being. Let me explain that. When the soul is in heaven, not even in heaven. You see, when the soul is in heaven, it's also a being. When the soul is in Gan Eden, before it comes down here, the soul goes two times to Gan Eden. Once before it comes down, then it comes down in a body, then it goes back to Gan Eden. Until Mashiach comes, souls are hanging out in Gan Eden. Eventually, all Nishamas are going to come back into this world, but until that time, all souls are in Gan Eden. But let's talk before it came down here. It's a spiritual being, it's not a physical being. It, it loves God. The soul loves God. And here's an amazing thing. The love that the neshama has to Hashem when it is in heaven is so much more powerful than it has down here when it's in a body because its understanding of God is not hindered by the limitations of a human perception, a physical perception. The soul sees God's greatness and it loves Hashem with powerful deep love. But it's still operating through its mind. The neshama is still perceiving Hashem through its mind and therefore, its love is still considered with all your heart with all your soul. It will only connect to God and only to the ray of Hashem. What does it say happens in Gan Eden? Tzadikim yoshvim, tzadikim sit, v'nehenen they delight miziv hashchina. The ray, the ray is that crumb. The ray is that thought. That's all the neshamas can perceive. They can perceive that thought much more than we can perceive it, but it's still stuck in the thought. That's why the neshama is called, when it is above, it's called an omed. Chai Hashem Hashem says, I swear by God that I have stood before Him. What does it mean? When I was a neshama in heaven, I was a stationary being. I stood in one place, even though I grew in my knowledge, but that's still called standing in one place because I don't really, really connect to that which is infinite and boundless. So how does the neshama connect to its divine spark, to its essence? That's deeper. It's subconscious to the soul in heaven as well. That's what I'm saying. Not only is it subconscious in our in ourselves, it's subconscious to the soul in heaven too. Because souls in heaven are also have an, have, have an identity. They're also set up with intellect and emotions. So guess what happens? The only way to get the neshama to come into contact to the pure longing desire to connect to God is only when you put the soul into stress. Only when the soul goes into a pressure cooker. It's only when the soul is in depress, is in is in distress, and it's under such pressure that it begins to boil and boil and boil. That's the purpose why the soul came into a body. It comes into a body, and there is so much distraction. It really wants to connect to God. It wants to use its mind, but the mind gets occupied with making a living. The mind gets occupied with all the other narishkeit, with, 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 with Trump and Clinton and whatever else is happening, that the mind thinks that it, it needs to know because the, the, the presidency will not be decided unless I can really know what's happening. And our mind gets, and, but let's say even in important matters, our mind really gets caught up with just surviving. Everybody's just trying to survive. And there's so much, how much can we already, how, how, much, how much time and energy can a person, even if they try, really spend on attaching themselves to God. So the soul gets, gets uncomfortable. And it gets uncomfortable because it wants to connect, but it can't connect. And it experiences barriers and barriers and barriers and barriers. That creates tension. But that's not enough. It's not enough. You know when it really, really, really breaks? 
the more tension it has, the more tension it has, the more tension it has, is when it comes to a certain point when it really realizes how utterly disconnected it became from its source. And the thought of that I have become so disconnected, that my life has become so... I, I'm, the, the klipa, the, the, the shells, the deceptions, have so deceived me, and I've become so entangled in their big web, this web of, of deception and of lies, distortion of reality, has so, so disconnected me that I don't even know anything anymore. And the, soul, and the person becomes frustrated and frustrated, and, at a certain, and, they, and they break down. They, their ego breaks and their eye breaks, and then they start weeping, and they start sobbing. Now what's really happening over here is, in the beginning it's your thinking, in the beginning it's a rational, logical process of thinking like, what has happened to me? But the moment there is the break, something else takes over, something magical. The pure spark that's at the core of the Jewish neshama comes out with a gushing desire. Now the neshama does not come from the ray. The neshama is rooted in God Almighty's truth. And the soul wants only one thing at this moment. It wants to rise and pick itself up and run and race, break free from all the constraints, from all Egypt, from anything holding it. And she wants to pour herself out in her father's lap. She wants to spill herself out into God and to just be one because that's really what she comes from, where she comes from. And I'm going to tell you, there's no rational, there's no reason. It's just this powerful break and the powerful yearning that has no explanation. It's a weeping, sobbing soul as a soul cries, I just want you. I don't even know what I want, but I want you. That's the cry of the neshama. But that cry will only come out like the sages say why the Jewish people compared to olive tree. Just like an olive doesn't give its oil until it's crushed, so too the person doesn't give its oil. The pure power, the love of the neshama doesn't come out until it's crushed. This is not not intellectual. It's not based on any calculations. It's just the neshama as as the kalipa breaks and the soul comes gushing forth. Not the conscious powers, no, not that, just the pure point, essence of the soul that is one with God Himself, yearns for the Ebishter, yearns for oneness, oneness with God. When is the time for this to happen? When is the time for this to happen? Over the next couple of days. What are we going to be doing over the next couple of days? We're going to be banging I sinned, I sinned, I sinned. I'm sorry, God. I'm so far from you. I'm so far. I'm so we keep on telling ourselves, look at me. I don't know what to do with myself. All this is, first, it doesn't happen one, two, three. There's one, cla- one crack, and then another crack, and then another crack, and another crack. But it has to come to a certain point where the person just breaks down. And the breaking point of the soul, that's, the, that's when the soul is liberated from its constraints as an entity other than God, and that's when it really weeps and really cries. This is expressed in the shofar. That's exactly what the shofar is. The shofar is a simple sound. It's the sound of the tekiah. What's the tekiah? The tekiah is when something causes so much pain, and we spoke about this many times. When you have a pain, and it's, it's, it's hurting you, but it's hurting you in a way that you can make sense of it, then you can explain your hurt in words. But when you have a pain that touches you in a place 
deeper than your mind, that's touching your essence, a person just shouts, God forbid something happens to someone's child. They cry out with simple cry. They don't speak, they don't talk. But even the simple cry, it says, even that simple cry is a sign that it hasn't reached all the way into your essence because you can at least still hold your breath and give one long cry. But when it, the, the pain goes so deep that you don't have any vessel inside of you to hold the pain, the pain is just unbearable, then the soul just, the sobbing, that's what sobbing is. Sobbing is small sounds, it can't, there's no vessel. The pain is too strong, it doesn't have a vessel. And it just lets go. That's the tkiah, that's the shvarim, the trua sound. The weeping cry of Israel, the weeping cries of the soul. That reaches, and what's the last tekiah? The tekiah is God responding, and God's essence is drawn into your neshama, and you and Hashem become one. At that moment, you're not finite, you're not limited, you're one long extension of God into this world. And not God's rays. At this moment, God has found a home in this world. A space has been created for Hashem Himself to be drawn out because this is the only time that someone called for Him. God needs an invitation. The invitation is only in that broken heart, in that broken soul that weeps without words. That's the cry. And that's the meaning that the Pasuk is saying. Smilai, God first gives us His left hand. All that distance, all that tension is supposed to lead you to a break. And once you have the break, the Yamina is right hand, Chapkeni. God's presence comes down. We're in your sukkah. That's the sukkah. The sukkah is Hashem's infinite truth, His reality hovering over you for seven days. And Shemini Atzeret Simchas Torah, you're able to internalize it and take it in and become one with Hashem Himself. That's the journey. And we could never get to this panemiastic place if we don't have the frustration of first experiencing the stress of the distance. So I would just give everyone over here just a, a, a simple little advice. For me, I come to Shul on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, singing all the things, this part, that part. It's nice. It's wonderful. If you wear a talus, you're a little bit better off because you can be in your own space. If you don't wear a talus, if you're a woman without a talus, or if you're... Uh, if you, it's very hard to do this in public. It's a whole different story if you wake up one time over the next two weeks at midnight, two, three in the morning. If you're a man, you can go to the mikveh before and ask the Abishta to please open your soul and say to him, just, you know what? It's these days, you know why? Because... What happens is God comes very close to us during these days. And the neshama begins to vibrate. All we need to do is to give it an opening so it can come out. It needs to come out. All this pent up constrictions need to come out. And it will come out. You say to Hillen, you read a little bit the English. David Amelech's words are so powerful. And if you do it any other time of the year, it will not have the same effect. I guarantee you. It's the 10 days. It's from Rosh Hashanah or maybe a few days slichot before that. That one is able to, one is able to come to this to this breaking, and that sobbing—that's your own tkiyah shofar. You can be at shul and hear tkiyah shofar; it's very nice. And the mitzvah is to hear tkiyah shofar. But the main thing is for every person to have his own tkiyah shofar at some time during this period. And that's you should know that's the purpose we were created. I believe it. That for that moment is the deepest. That's tshuva. The neshama comes down to do tshuva. Then, after that, 
you will take all that refreshed energy. You'll be reborn as the cosmos are reborn. Everything is reborn. You're a whole new human being. Now you can take that energy and put it into Torah mitzvahs and you're creating vessels to contain that godliness all year long. But that's the unique gift that we have. This is not something that is meant to scare us. We should be excited that such opportunity is coming when we can stop being tiny and small and human and suddenly become godly and whole again with our source. And there's only a few million people in the world and there's only a few million creatures in all of the cosmos that can do that. And one of them is you. So we shouldn't wait. We take, realize this is Tkiyah Shofar, this is the power of it. Connect Hashem in the deepest way. This is tshuva. Your entire being is rebooted, refreshed. You're a new human being. You're a new existence. There's, and, and, and you're alive. May we merit that the Ebershter hears the collective cry of the Jewish people, the individual cry of a weeping soul. And the Ebershter gives us all the best year ever. And the real bracha that Hashem finally moves into this world to live here happily ever after with all of us together here, let it be now. Oh, yeah.